Uh, great to be with you all this morning. Hope you had a lovely week and a great Martin Luther King Jr. Day earlier in the week. It's always a great opportunity for our family to uh, reflect on him and the movement that he led and express gratitude for how much uh, God did through him. And uh, yet it's also mixed with a bit of lament as well and hopes and prayers and dreams about uh, what it looks like to see the fullness of his dream unfold moving forward. So hopefully that was a uh, a great day for many of you to pause and reflect on that moment and where we're at in terms of culture and kingdom. Uh, but in the meantime, this morning, we are continuing in our series through uh, the gospel written by John. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to John 3, verse 1, and we'll pick up there in a moment. Uh, for context, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you'll remember that we recently started into this new section of John's Gospel, chapters 2 through 12, which are collectively known as the Book of Signs, in which Jesus does and says many things to sort of confront the Jewish nation, revealing who he is in the process. And as these chapters build and Jesus continues to speak and act in very intentional ways, the looming question, the tension building in the background is how will the Jewish nation respond? Will they ultimately accept their Messiah or reject him? And in this morning's text, at the start of chapter 3, there's this very interesting moment where one of the leaders of the Jewish nation comes to Jesus at night in secret to try to figure out what's going on. And it appears from the text that he is intrigued, that he likes this new rabbi, that he's drawing near, his, his curiosity is piqued, but he doesn't want their conversation to be public. So he comes to Jesus at night. Uh, some scholars think that these two actually talked through the entire night in dialogue, but whether they talked for minutes or for hours, this is all that we have of the conversation. This is starting in chapter 3, verse 1. It says this, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. So this is a big deal. He came to Jesus at night or in secret and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Which in the context of the book of signs, this is a really interesting statement. It means that for Nicodemus and others, the signs seem to be working. Even some of the national religious leaders are beginning to believe, no, this man is from God. But then comes Jesus' response. He replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. He's confused by the whole conversation. 
And Jesus says, you are Israel's teacher over the whole nation. And you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Let's pray. Jesus, we... um, come intentionally under your kingship, under your teaching, under your vision, and we recognize, Lord, that though uh, we have already actually been shaped in another worldview, in the worldview of the world, uh, with all of its uh, obvious and subtle uh, beliefs and paradigms, uh, we come back to you, Lord, to be reshaped, to sort of rediscover what is actually true, what is true about you, what is true about us, what's true about the human condition, what's true about just the world that we live in and what it is you want to do in this world. So would you uh, come now, Lord, and would you speak to us about what is true? Would you uh, reform our worldview and, and uh, around an accurate vision that comes from you? We uh, surrender that to you, Lord. We give you our hearts, our minds, the ways that we think, the paradigms we've adopted, the ways that we've been formed, and we say, uh, form us back into the true image of God. Give us the mind of Christ so that we can see accurately uh, what's going on in the world around us and how we can participate with you. We yield to you as king in this place. Would you come and have your way in the power of the Holy Spirit? Amen. In 1933, a frustrated German population, uh, pushed to the brink by overly harsh World War I reparations, turned to a man who promised to lead them out, to restore the German nation and right the wrongs that were being done to them. His name was Adolf Hitler. And the events which followed his successful election are well ingrained in many of our minds. The invasion of Western Europe, the extermination of millions of Jewish people simply because they were Jewish. But at the very same time, uh, nearby Russia, while bitterly opposed to the Germans and the Nazis, nonetheless justify the killing of many of their own people by some estimates, 60 million who perished in total under their regimes. Uh, Together, these events helped make the last century the bloodiest century in all of human history. Meanwhile, the Enlightenment, which more or less deconstructed religious faith and formed an entirely new worldview in the West, has refused to change its tone. According to the Enlightenment, their sort of working theory, which is the working theory of our secular culture, is that human beings are basically good and that we just need a little education, a little money, and the right political vision in order for everything to fall into place, in order for everything to flourish as we sense it should. 
Uh, the problem is that the Enlightenment theory, which is essentially held by millions of Americans inside and outside of the church, doesn't correspond to reality. And you could use Germany and Russia as simple case studies to prove that point. Many Germans were highly educated, highly cultured. Their art, their architecture, their engineering, their music, all of it was at a high point. And yet in that moment, they managed to be instruments in one of the most shocking and evil campaigns in all of human history. Similar things could be said of Russia or even modern regimes like ISIS or Al-Qaeda. If you look at their leaders and the instigators of those movements, many of them have boatloads of money, millions of dollars, and have been highly educated at top American universities. But the sad reality is, it doesn't change the evil within. Essentially everyone, secular, Buddhist, Christian, Muslim, we all recognize that something is wrong with the world that we live in. Everyone from every background has this sense, we're all in agreement, that there is a, a degree of chaos and evil within the human system. And, and so we're all looking, contemplating, what do we do about that? How do we fix that problem? What's the solution? What is right uh, and, and how will it fix what is wrong? In fact, the reason that so many people turned to Hitler and Stalin in the first place was because they confidently proposed answers to, the, to these nagging problems. The problem is economic sanctions, or it's the royal family, or the upper class, or it's capitalism, or it's the Jews. Give me power, I will fix that problem for you. And people said yes. In our modern Western context, we conceive the problem to be religion and faith, or to be a lack of education, or a lack of money, or the fact that historically we've had so many uh, restraints and preconceived notions that sort of uh, stifled the expression of our sexuality and our sexual identity. And as a result, within the Western world, we say, oh, well, the, the solution then is to rid our society of faith and religion, or to remove anything, uh, any preconceived notion that would uh, govern our sexuality or our sexual identity. Or we should just set out to give everyone a really good uh, secular education. And if we can do those things and we can get the right politician in power with the right political vision, then everything will start to fall into place. The evil and chaos that we sense within the human system will begin to evaporate. But the sad reality is that neither communism, nor secular education, nor the secular re uh, sexual revolution are going to fix the human problem. Because the human problem isn't out there, 
uh, the human problem is in here. It's inside the human heart. Something deep within us is bent, curved, inclined away from God and toward evil. And every solution proposed by secular culture is ultimately an external fix, not an internal one. Let's regulate the economy so that everyone makes exactly the same amount. Let's remove any sense of external guidance uh, that would guide our sexuality. Let's get the right laws in place or the right politician or the right political vision or the right tax structure and then all of our problems will start to evaporate. This is one of the reasons why people are so frenetic about politics right now on the right and on the left. It's because we've become convinced that that will solve the human problem. If that's the solution to the human problem, we have to become radical in our politics. It's our only hope. We just need the right laws, the right teachers, the right politicians, the right education, the right sexual paradigms, the right whatever it is. But notice that all of these things are externally imposed on the human heart. And they don't work. You can give people religious laws or secular laws or great teachers who can tell them right from wrong. You can give them money and a house and a white picket fence and a double major from prestigious university. And if the pandemic has proved anything, it's that the unredeemed heart is still as nasty as it's ever been. Those things do not work. You cannot externally change the human heart. You cannot regulate it into goodness. And that's ultimately what Jesus and Nicodemus are talking about in their midnight conversation. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and essentially says, hey, I'm seeing the signs. I think you're from God. I'm preparing to go public and, and give you my endorsement. I just need to sort out a few last minute things before we can sign off on you and your ministry and everything you're doing within the nation. And, and if I were Jesus, I would be excited. It's like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. You're so close. Let me just sort out these last few things for you. This is going to be amazing. Instead, Jesus seems to change the subject and says, essentially, hey, you need to be born again. This is my paraphrase of it. You need to be born again. You've got the best religious law on the planet. You've got some great cultural norms and values. You've got the truth about who God is. You have the temple of God where his manifest presence dwells on earth, but it's not enough. All that stuff is external, and the only way you can enter the kingdom of heaven is if you've had an internal change, a rebirth into a new type of human, because only new creations can enter and enjoy the new creation that is coming. 
And Nicodemus is a bit stunned, as you or I might be. He's tongue-tied, and there's this odd conversation that follows in which Nicodemus struggles to understand spiritual rebirth. And, and in context, he's actually struggling to understand why he would need to be reborn. It's not the general concept. If you go back and read the Old Testament, the prophets talk about it all the time. So he shouldn't have been shocked at the concept of the Holy Spirit bringing about, taking a heart of stone and making it a heart of flesh. Spiritual rebirth, it's all over the Old Testament. But I think what's truly shocking to Nicodemus is that he is in need of this rebirth. That doesn't make sense to him. He says, hey, I, I am a good person. I'm a moral person. I'm a national and religious leader. I am zealous for God. I'm a teacher of the Bible of my day, the law and the prophets. I've been recognized and elevated because of my morality and my heart for God. Jesus says, it's not enough. You have to be reborn as a different type of human. In other words, he's saying, you're an apple tree. And everyone else around you, all the people that you know, they're apple trees. And some of you are producing lots of apples, and some of you are producing very few. But the problem is that God doesn't want apples, God wants oranges. And you can make all sorts of external changes to an apple tree, but it will never produce for you a single orange. Never. If you have an apple tree that's struggling, you can give it fertilizer, you can give it water, you can give it more sunlight, you can treat it with special pesticides to cure a disease or pestilence, but those are all external things that you can do, which in the end can only make it a better apple tree. And God wants oranges. All of our proposed solutions to the human problem, they are all external changes that at their very best, even when they work the way we want them to work, the very best thing they can do is take an apple tree and make it a better apple tree. They can take an apple tree that's not producing a lot and get it to produce some more apples. That's the best that our external changes can do. It's not enough. That's, that's religious law, and it's Nicodemus and the Pharisees. Jesus says it, it won't get the job done. That's higher education and religious law from every religion, and meditation and medication and Buddhism and communism and all of it. They are all external changes imposed on the human heart that we hope will make it better from the outside in from the top down. It's fertilizer and sun and water and nutrients, and even when they do work, all they have in their power to do is to produce more apples. Ta-da! 
And God says, I'm not interested. I don't want apples. I want oranges. And the only way to get them is to change the apple tree at the deepest level. It actually requires a genetic shift in its DNA. It has to be reborn, remade as a different type of tree. Before you come to Jesus, the Bible says you're in Adam. And you're dead in your sin. No matter what you do, no matter how hard you strive, you're still in Adam. You're still dead in your sin. You're enslaved to law and to sin. You don't produce the right type of fruit. So when you're in that position, you can actually strive all day, every day, for the rest of your life. And the best that you will do is produce more apples. That's it. God says, I'm I'm not interested in that. I don't want them. Your, Your apples are no good here. But when we surrender to Jesus and we receive the Holy Spirit, He does something deep within us. A shift occurs in our spiritual DNA. The old is done away with and we're reborn as a different type of tree. A tree that naturally begins to produce the type of fruit that God wants. And more importantly, a tree that can be transplanted into the eternal kingdom of God. You can try and bring in an apple tree, it will only wilt in the heat. It is not suited for the conditions of the age to come. Apple trees wouldn't survive there. The conditions aren't right. We have this nagging sense sometimes. I've asked that question, God, why can't everyone just come into the kingdom of heaven? Why do we need the cross and forgiveness and rebirth and all of this stuff that Jesus is talking about? Why do we need that? Why can't you just throw open the gates of the kingdom of God and everybody, no matter what, just come in? Because it wouldn't work. You you can't just take an apple tree and drag it into the eternal kingdom of God. The light and the heat would kill it. It is not yet the right type of tree, the, the right type of creature. The only way to properly enter is to be reborn as a new creation that is then well-suited to receive new creation. That can be transplanted into the age to come and flourish there. There are many people, secular, religious, and otherwise, who will stand before Him at the end of the age And say, God, look how many apples I produced. Aren't I amazing? Aren't I a really good human being? And God's going to say, sorry, I'm not interested in those. Your apples are no good here. And as for you, you will not be able to receive what I so badly want to give you. 
this is the place I wanted you to be. This is what I want you to receive. But you are not the type of creature who can receive it. I cannot transplant you into this place. Only the spirit that's been reborn in the power of the Holy Spirit can be properly transplanted into the age to come and flourish there under those conditions. We have to be reborn as new creations before we can properly enter new creation. Every Saturday for our family is our Sabbath day. Uh, it's our day of rest where we don't work, we just relax and trust in God and, and enjoy Him and enjoy what He's given us and enjoy one another. And uh, it's a day of restoration. And so yesterday morning, I got the rare joy uh, of being able to sleep in, uh, which doesn't happen a lot for me. And I woke up around 9 a.m. and kind of went stumbling out. Everyone else in the family was already awake and kind of went stumbling out into our house and was met immediately by my six-year-old son, who's our oldest. And he said, Dad, I want to receive Jesus. And I'm still like half asleep, just totally stunned. Like, wait, what? Like, what, what are you talking about? For me, this is like out of the blue. I have no context, no lead up. Uh, and, and that's what he said. And so my wife and I sat him down and talked really clearly. Hey, this is what this means. This is a really big deal. Uh, here's what it means if you want to take that step. Uh, here's what it's going to mean for the rest of your life. And we made it really clear and laid it out before him. And he said, yeah, I want that. Like, I, that, that's what I want to do. And so we uh, sat on the couch, and I got to lead him in prayer as he surrendered his life to Jesus. And he meant it in the context. It was, it was an incredible moment to see him surrender in that way. Uh, and it was, it, was such, it was such a powerful moment and so it was like, just felt like it had nothing to do with us. Like this was just God working in his heart. And it was so genuine and so powerful that we finished praying. Uh, and I looked up and there was our five-year-old, like waiting right there in line. And he said, Dad, I want to do that too. Like that thing that I just saw my brother do, I, I want that. I want to do that too. I want to pray that. And I thought, okay. Wow, like I didn't, I didn't grow up in the church. Uh, I don't know how this works. I've heard stories and testimonies of the five-year-olds, people as young as five, giving their life to Jesus. And so I thought, okay, I, I think we can do this. Like I, I think this is legit. And so we did the same thing with him. Uh, we talked through everything. Hey, this is the weight and gravity of this. And he said, yeah, I, I want that. And then I got to lead him in a really simple prayer as he accepted Jesus, and I thought, like, what, what is happening right now? Like, this is not how I thought my Saturday morning was going to go. Uh, we just didn't see this coming in, in any sense. And then it got even better because I finished with our five-year-old, and then our three-year-old lined up. And he had just watched both of his brothers give their lives to Jesus, and he said, I want to accept Jesus too. And I thought, wait, wait a second, like, hold on, you're, you're three years old. Like, here I am, like, I don't, I, 
I didn't grow up in the church. I don't know if our kids will ever accept Jesus and receive him. And now all of a sudden, out of the blue, they're like lining up and they're saying, oh, yeah, I want that, I want that. Now I want that too. And so I was, I was thinking that through with our three-year-old and thought like, is this, is this too young? Like, is this, are we allowed to do this? And so we ended up chatting with him and I realized through the course of the conversation, I'm actually kind of trying to talk him out of it. Like, hey, that's really awesome. Like, if you want to wait until you're older, like, you can decide a different time. And, and he's, no, he's adamant. No, this is what I want. Like, we couldn't, uh, we couldn't talk him out of it. And then in the conversation, finally I realized, like, what am I doing? Like, I'm trying to talk someone out of giving their life to Jesus when clearly this is what he wants. Uh, this is crazy. And so then I got to pray with him as he repented of his little past life that has been, you know, three years of biting and scratching his brothers. And, and I'm like, wow, you haven't lived that long, but you actually have a lot to repent of. So this is, you, you really need Jesus. Let's do this thing. Uh, and so I got to lead him in this prayer of repenting of the old, and all three of them uh, got to step into new life together. And it was just a beautiful morning. And we rearranged the rest of our day. We're like, today we're just going to celebrate. And we just packed in everything we could yesterday, uh, celebrating the decision that they'd made and that step of faith that they took. But, But Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, to bring that back, he's saying, that's it. Like what happened on our couch Saturday morning, that's it. That is the solution to the human problem. What happened to our boys yesterday, whether they fully realized it or not, is that they were reborn. You know, my, my wife and I, we participated. We gave birth. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Something totally different happened yesterday. Spirit was giving birth to spirit, to new life. that's now taken root in them. He says, of all the things you could come up with to solve the human problem, this is it. It's actually a rebirth in the power of the Spirit from the inside out. We place our faith in Jesus. We repent of our old lives, no matter how long or short they've been. We repent of the old. We receive that forgiveness and cleansing, and we're reborn in the power of the Holy Spirit. You step out of darkness and into the light. You step out of Adam and into Christ. You step out of death and into life. And the scriptures say, when that happens, you become a new creation. You become a new, a new type of thing, a new type of tree, to extend that analogy. And, and as a result, you begin bearing fruit fruit that lasts, fruit that matters for eternity. The fruit that you bear in Christ actually receives eternal reward. It's the type of fruit that God wants, and you become the type of person who can enter into the eternal kingdom of heaven and thrive there. Every ounce of you is now able to receive all that God wants to give in that place. So that's the invitation this morning. If you're here and you've never had that experience, if you've never given your life to Jesus, 
that's the invitation to surrender in that way as we got to watch our boys surrender yesterday morning uh, to, to hand over the old, to, to place your faith in his brutal cross and his stunning resurrection. Say, Jesus, I, I, want, I believe that. I receive you as king. I want that for myself. You step into life, become a new creation. It's the only way any of us will enter the kingdom of heaven. And for the rest of us, who have already given our lives to Jesus, which is the vast majority of us in the room, I think as we end, I just want us to take a moment and just sit in this reality, to just be reminded that not only have we been reborn in the power of the Holy Spirit, but as Jesus says to Nicodemus, that's the only way that anyone will enter the kingdom of heaven. And honestly, I think for me, the struggle is uh, not being reborn. That's already happened for me. The struggle is actually remembering, oh my gosh, my, my friends, my relatives, my coworkers, my neighbors, people who look really good on the outside and who bear lots of apples, like they, this is the only way they will be able to receive the kingdom of heaven. I think the risk is not, for most of us, is not that we will fail to be reborn. It's too late. That's already happened. The risk for a lot of us is that we will actually take on the cultural narratives about how one qualifies for the kingdom of heaven. Instead of, and, and when we do that, the issue is that the mission of God actually gets blurred. We actually lose God's heart for the lost because we look around and we say, yeah, I guess maybe the secular narrative is right. Maybe everyone is kind of good and that's just kind of enough. And, and the problem is when we're shaped by that paradigm, we actually sort of release the kingdom of God. Not the kingdom of God in its fullness, but we release the mission of God and, and that vision of the inbreaking kingdom and the desperate need in those around us and in our city as a whole to be reborn in the power of the Spirit. Honestly, with the, the cultural stigma and backdrop and pressure, we will not step out and risk for God if we don't sense and believe that people actually need this. And, and so what I want to do uh, as we close is I actually... Uh, I'm going to have us break up into small groups for just a few minutes before we worship. And what I want us to do when you get into your group, you can take a moment and just pause and take a deep breath. I think that's actually the best way to start prayer is when we just slow down and begin to picture who we're coming to, begin to remind ourselves of who God is, his heart, his love. And as we're doing that and just taking a moment to Take some deep breaths and wait on the Lord. Uh, my hunch is that as we begin to turn our heart and mind toward the lost, that God will probably bring someone to your mind. Could be a relative, a coworker, a neighbor, somebody who currently is lost, uh, but who God is seeking with, with a sense of love and purpose and urgency. I heard the backstory later on, but what actually triggered our six-year-old uh, to, to want to receive Jesus is that my wife was reading for him 
that morning while I was still sleeping, was reading for him the parable of the lost coin. Hey, I have 10 coins, but I lost one of them. And just the urgency with with that person says, I put everything on hold. I'm going to turn my house upside down. I want that lost coin. I want it. And they find that coin and receive it. And it says they threw a party. And, and then the final line of this parable book that she's reading says, there, there is more celebration among the angels in heaven when one when one sinner repents, there's a greater celebration. And we tried to capture some of that yesterday with our boys. Today, you, you guys don't even fully realize, but heaven is celebrating right now as one person repents of the old and steps into the new. If we could see the response that that evoked, if we could see the necessity of that rebirth, it would change the way that we participate in the mission of God and who we're willing to go to, and what we're willing to say, and what we're willing to risk in terms of our own reputations along the way. So as we circle up, essentially what we're praying for is more of God's missional heart. Lord, I want to catch that heart, that love, that, that uh, desire for the loss, that necessity. But as we're doing that, I think it'd be really fitting if we focus some of our prayers on real people. So as you circle up here in a moment, it can be in groups of, let's say, three to four. Uh, take, some mo- take some time to just take a deep breath and pause and wait on the Lord. And then I would encourage you guys to share, hey, here's someone on my heart uh, that I would really love for us to pray for. Someone who is, in a sense, a lost coin. Uh, someone who maybe is a Nicodemus, who people come to them. They look so good and people come to them for advice and think of them as a leader and say, that is a good person, but whom Jesus would lovingly approach and say, the only way you will enter the fullness of the kingdom is if you're reborn in the power of the Spirit. So we're going to circle up and just take some time to lift up real names and real people who God loves and who we love. And in the process, God will probably start um, moving us in that direction and mobilizing us for the sake of the loss, for the sake of his kingdom.